morning's scripture reading is from Paul's second letter to the Corinthians, chapter 9, verses 11 to 15. And you can find this on page 829 if you're using one of the Bibles we've provided in the chair pockets or at the end of the aisles. Again, 2 Corinthians, chapter 9, verses 11 to 15. You will be enriched in every way for all your generosity which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. For the ministry of this service is not only supplying the needs of the saints, but is also overflowing in many thanksgivings to God. By their approval of this service, they will glorify God because of your submission flowing from your confession of the gospel of Christ and the generosity of your contribution for them and for all others while they long for you and pray for you because of the surpassing grace of God upon you. Thanks be to God for this inexpressible gift. This is God's word. What are the top, let's say, three resources of which our world is in dire need? What would you say? I would probably say one is water. We know that's increasingly in need. But there are ways to get that. Another one is energy. Uh, And here at Cayman, we acutely feel the need for energy. Uh, Every time you see a barge anchored just off Dart Park with its long uh, tube extended towards these uh, petrol receptacles, we're reminded of the fact that our primary source of energy is also an import, yet another import into Cayman. Some of you hail originally from South Africa. If you're from South Africa, you're a sapper, raise your hand. Oh, this morning. And, and you know, yeah, that's right, you know, like a third of our church. So, you know that uh, there are rolling blackouts. Some of you have family members experiencing this, friends, former church members are experiencing rolling blackouts in South Africa right now through a process called load shedding. Electricity cannot be consistently contained in one place, so it's sporadic. Although there are some neighborhoods where it, the lights are turned on longer than others, uh, which is a little fishy. Might be more wealthy places, who knows. Uh, experts believe that within the next several decades, certainly by the end of this century, we're going to have to replace oil. And by next century, natural gas. That's 60% of the world's energy right there. Wind and solar make up about 2%. And that can be stretched maybe to about 15% possibly at the most 20. So there'll be a shortage. But what if I was to tell you there's a way to create sufficient energy to sustain the world's population for the next 30 million years? Or until Jesus comes. (laughs) And to do so in a way that would create little to basically no pollution. And once it gets started with the help of just a little lithium and seawater, it is self-regenerating. It can sustain itself in a little alpine town in the south of France stands ITER, the International Thermonuclear Experimental Reactor. I know that sounds bad when people hear thermonuclear, but let me tell you more here. Genius astrophysicists, people who with a way higher IQ than me, have a scientific plan in place. They have the raw materials, and now they only have to execute. Create this uh, super hot cloud of heavy oxygen in a vacuum chamber such that the atoms become so hot that they fuse together. And when they fuse together, 
It's going to cause an energy emission ten times hotter than the core of our sun. The sun. At which point it will become so hot, it will become like the sun or any large star which can regenerate the next wave of energy from its own core. It will give energy away, but then it will regenerate from its own core. Now you've heard probably of nuclear fission, where atoms, the process by which atoms are split apart, they go apart, and that's why nuclear waste is created, because there's an apartness to it. There's a wastefulness to it. That is nuclear fission. This, what I'm talking about, is nuclear fusion. The problem is, there isn't a container that can hold such energy, because it would just obliterate it, right? Except by use of giant magnets. Magnets would hold the hydrogen cloud in place such that it would never actually touch the external container. So you would see that there would be this this big cloud in place producing this raw energy. So the science of it will work. The raw materials are all there on site in France. The next problem is execution. Decades, decades have gone by such that the target date has continued to move out. More recently, from 2010 to 2020, they're pretty set to move that out once again. Yet there's still a more ultimate problem, and that is there just don't seem to be enough people, sufficient people, to give their lives for it. Now, this is what Rafi Kachaturian points out in this very interesting, dense New Yorker article from March of last year. And you can look this up, you can Google it, just Google a star in a bottle, New Yorker, and you'll see this article. At the end of the article, Kachatorian describes sitting down with a physicist who'd been despondent, like a lot of these physicists. They get depressed, they get sad, they wonder where their life has gone, and they ultimately leave. And he was talking to another person like this who was ready to give up, but came finally to see his life as a part of a greater whole, dedicated to a greater whole. The astrophysicist that sat down with him and had a drink with him described his dream like the American civil rights leader, Martin Luther King and his dream, a dream for civil rights that only came to fruition after Martin Luther King Jr. died. And Cachatorian sort of ends the article there, and the reader's left to kind of draw his own conclusions, but it's a pretty obvious conclusion you're supposed to draw, which is that limitless regenerating energy will come about as each person dedicated to it gives their life for it. Dies these little deaths along the way, such that this greater good can come about. That's the only way it will happen is through, ultimately, the resource of a human life, laying down one's life. And friends, that's where you come in. You can be the genius, following through where every astrophysicist has fallen short. That can be you. Let me explain. One more resource that the entire world needs, but isn't mentioned in New Yorker, isn't debated in a UN General Assembly, or at a G8 summit, but the Bible reports is desperately required by every single human being, and that is grace. Grace. God's love made active through an undeserved gift. Ultimately expressed in the person of Jesus, who died for us and rescues us to be with us forever. A free gift, undeserved, and powerful for life. Eternal life. And then it's expressed to us in various forms by God. I'm going to say something about this before we turn our attention to 2 Corinthians 9. People, by and large, have experienced something other than grace. Every person we encounter almost has experienced something other than grace. How so? People experience these 
perversions of grace and life, this twisting of grace and life. I would say through three main ways. Anti-grace, empty grace, conditional grace. Anti-grace is simply judgment. An unrealistic standard that punishes any person who dares try to live it out. Sometimes that comes from ourself, our own standard. Sometimes it's society's standard. Sometimes it's a loved one's standard of us that none of us can possibly live out, so it punishes us perpetually. There's empty grace, unfulfilled promises of unconditional love and relationship. So when things get hard, we turn around and that person is gone or that thing isn't there for us any longer. It can't fulfill the promise it tries to hold out. There's also conditional grace, a promise to give and to love as long as you love first, as long as you bring something to the table. All of us have experienced that. If you've experienced any tit-for-tat relationships, where you feel like you're constantly bargaining in the relationship, if I give this, they'll give that. Well, new Christians in Jerusalem are experiencing a sizable dose of conditional grace, perverted, twisted, conditional grace from family members who they expected would love them no matter what, which is what family is supposed to do, right? It turns out, though, if you're a first century Jew and you trust Jesus, you're turned out of your home, you lose the rights to all your inheritance, and all of this is exacerbated when there's a food shortage everywhere in the city. At the moment you need to find a home, a moment you need a little extra money for food, for maybe draw from your inheritance, it's gone. And you find out this isn't unconditional love. This isn't real grace. This is a perversion of it. As we've seen over the last four weeks, Paul's been trying to say to a sister church, the Corinthian church, here's your chance to tangibly show grace to other new Christians in Jerusalem so they can experience real family. Here's your opportunity to show them what their natural family has not. Your money can be their manna. Free, tangible love from heaven through you. You can be a part of this. And here in verses 11 through 15 of chapter 9 specifically, we see something even more remarkable, and that is you and I can be geniuses in this. Geniuses. Smarter than an astrophysicist. Tell me how, Ryan, to know you want to know. And I will. But I tell you, God has always chosen to use certain persons throughout history to show little flashes of tangible love and grace. But the Apostle Paul communicates that a new opportunity is radically possible through the gospel. And that is this, that God wishes to use every member of his church to not only give grace, but this regenerating grace. A grace that once it starts, it won't stop. It'll just keep going. It'll keep regenerating into a generous and adventurous life. In other words, Paul's saying there's a way for God's love to get activated in and through you. And when it's given away through your life, such that when it starts, it doesn't ever have to stop. So it'll never run out. You'll always be enriched. You'll be replenished with more. Then when you give it away again, you'll be refilled with more. It's genius. And that's what Paul's trying to explain in these verses. So let's, let's look here. He's trying to explain in these verses three things. The science of generosity works. The raw material is all here. It's all on site. And the adventurous life of regenerating generosity comes possible through dying your first little death. So let's look at what might become possible through your life, an adventure of generosity. 
First, we see that the science of generosity works. The science of generosity works. I'm going to give you three different proofs that it works. It's kind of like the scientific method, right? We're going to really show science with science, right? You test it, then you test the hypothesis, then you test the theory, and it becomes fact, right? So we're going to see this. Hopefully for you, you'll see that this regenerating generosity can be a fact of your life. Because of the Bible, we'll see it through the Corinthian church, and finally we'll see it through Sunrise Community Church. First, the Bible. Proof number one. Look with me, if you would, in verse 12. The ministry of the servants is supplying the needs of the saints. So the first thing we see is that generosity supplies practical needs of real people. And that's usually the one thing we think about when it comes to giving. You see someone in need, you give, it meets that need, boom, you're done. What Paul's saying is when you do it through Christ and with the love of Christ and with the resources that the gospel can give, that is just the smallest part of generosity. That's why he says, not only, but it is overflowing in many thanksgivings to God. You see there right at the rest of verse 12? Not only is it meeting the needs of real people, it is also overflowing in many thanksgivings to God. Generosity generates thanksgiving, which is the grace reflex. It's like the Greek word that we translate thanksgiving. It literally can be translated return grace, eucharista. Charista, charis means grace. Eucharist, that means return grace, a reflex of grace. You experience it, you want to show it back to God. Generosity also generates more glory for God. We see in verse 13, they will glorify God because of your submission. Generosity generates longing to hear from, to see, to visit with the giver. So the receiver of that generosity, this affection is produced. This bond is produced even if you're far away. So you see this a lot of times between you know, people who give to something like Compassion International, to a Compassion Child. They start to write the Compassion Child. They want to get to know them, and then the receiver wants to get to know the person giving. And it's a beautiful thing. Or with missionaries, as we'll see here in a moment. Generosity also generates prayer for the giver. We see that in verse 14. While they long for you and they pray for you, and we see this on the missions field. I, I've honestly had no more faithful interceders in my life than mission partners. I, I mean, I honestly am humbled by it. I should be the one interceding for them. They're on the front lines experiencing a kind of hardship I don't even know. Feeding hungry people. Dealing with people with debilitating diseases. Sometimes housing them. And yet, there are the ones who more frequently say to me, how can I pray for you? Why? Because as you're generous, as they receive generosity, people want to pray for you. It's a wonderful thing. What does all this? What does all, sorry, what does all this do? It fulfills verse 11, right? You, the one giving, will be enriched in every way. So as you give, all these things are coming back. The meaning of practical needs. Glory going to God. Thanksgiving spreading everywhere. Affection back to you. Right? Prayer on your behalf. This is the enriching in every way that happens when you're generous. You get this all back. Not to mention God will provide. He always provides for givers. Always. And notice how Paul gives all of these wills. This will happen. Do you notice this? Look back. You will be enriched. He's so certain of it. They will glorify God. 
It is a certainty because the science works. Generosity, once it starts, it just can't stop. It's self-regenerating. Proof number two we see that the science works is the Corinthian church. We don't see this here, but elsewhere. Paul's confidence is proven. He ends up paying his third visit to Corinth. He spends three months in this area in Greece, during which time he writes the church in Rome. And what do we read there? Romans 15, 26-27. Just listen to this, okay? Listen. He tells the Roman church, this is probably a few months after he writes this to the Corinthians, for Macedonia and Achaia. Remember, that's Corinth. If you read back in chapter 9, verse 2, Achaia is the region Corinth is located. For Macedonia and Achaia slash Corinth have been pleased to make some contribution for the poor amongst the saints in Jerusalem, and they were pleased to do it. In other words, Paul knows if he just explains to them the science of this generosity, that it works, they'll want to give. It will happen. And it does. It's proven. Within a few months, he's telling the Romans, look, look what the Corinthians did. They gave. And they were so happy about it. A third proof is you guys. It's you guys. Sunrise Community Church. Whether you know it or not. Last week, we addressed the role of uh, church leadership to guide generosity. If you notice in verse 11, Paul doesn't say that the gift is given. It's given, he says, through us. By whom Paul means the apostolic leadership of the early church. The apostles whom Jesus chosen. And, and they were the ones who would take the resources from Corinth and then distribute it practically door to door in Jerusalem. All right? The leadership. And I got to say, one of the most fun and weighty things we do as an eldership team is ask God to whom we should give. And then we get to have that Oprah moment, right? That Oprah Winfrey moment with the recipient where we share the excitement of giving and receiving. You get to call them up. Yeah, what did you want to meet about? What do you want to talk about over Skype? I have something to tell you, right? And then you get to tell them, we're giving this to you. And it's so exciting to watch them. And you get to hear stories about how, what, what kind of need that this met, what kind of practical need this immediately met. Then you hear stories later about how God is using them, how glory is going to God, and Thanksgiving is spreading everywhere. It's an amazing feeling as a leader. As an example, last week, Pastor Brett mentioned Adam and Paola Gordon who serve as missionaries at Camino de Vida Church in Lima, Peru. Adam is originally American. Paola is from Peru, from Lima. They got married. They lived there together, have two kids. They also happen to be the brother and sister of Emily and Eduardo Del Risco. Our very own Emily. Are they here today? Are they back there? His brother's here as well. Good to see you guys. They're very dear to us. And we had an opportunity to visit and spend time with Adam and Paola last spring in Lima. And it was such a great time of encouragement together. So seeing a picture up there, we were very happy. And I learned to grow a beard from Adam, clearly. But as we were praying, who should we give to? God, who would you want us to support? We were waiting on God, reflecting with each other. We thought we were done. And we, someone asked, well, well, is there anyone else? And one of the elders chimed in, well, what about the Gordons? I was like, man, that's, that's so great. Because I know that they've been wanting to save up for a home so they could feel more rooted in Lima. Let's give towards that. Maybe it'll help them feel a bit more settled. And honestly, guys, this was kind of the last fruits of our giving. We've talked about one of the principles of giving is giving from your first fruits and your last fruits. And for us as an elder team, this was kind of at the end. We had given, 
what we thought we were going to give. And we asked, is there anyone else to whom we can be generous? And I was so grateful that the other elders were keen to be generous. They said, what about the Gordons? And so we gave to the Gordons, and we got to share that with them. And apparently our gift was timely because they were struggling in that moment feeling settled. They were contemplating an opportunity to, to pastor a new campus of their church where they would meet in this sort of group of movie theaters. It was a major commitment for them. And our gift was just one more sort of reminder that God has called them to this work of loving people, of planning a church, of reaching people with the Gospel. So last Sunday, as we met here at sunrise, they launched a new campus at the same time, planning for two services. But here's what I'm so excited to tell you about. This is where generosity just starts to go crazy and spread everywhere. They were planning for two services, but the line for the first service was so long, so long, going almost out of the theater, they had to shorten the first and second service to make room for a third. And then once people heard there was going to be a third service, more people flocked in. So they had to make time for a fourth service. And then the fourth service erupted into another service because they couldn't fill in enough people in the movie theater. So they had to borrow a microphone from the kids' ministry. They had to ask one of their leadership to spontaneously preach, which he did. And all of a sudden, there was a fifth service. You imagine, you plan for two. Yeah, amen, right? And you get five. Yeah, we should clap for that. Praise God. This is what kind of thing that happens. When, when you start with generosity, this is the kind of thing that happens. It just starts to snowball. The gospel goes out. Glory and thanksgiving are spread. Prayer happens. Reports are given back to those who give. It's amazing. Just started with following through with a little extra generosity. It resulted in glory, thanksgiving. Did it result in longing? Yes. Adam's, Adam asked me basically one question. When can I Skype to see your family? And the second question is, when can I come to Cayman? When will my brother-in-law, Eduardo, hook me up at the Ritz so I can come visit? Because <laughs> he longs for us. Does it supply a real need? Absolutely. They're reaching people. They stuck around in Lima, and 47 people came forward as a response to the gospel to pray. 1,200 people attended the service. The science of generosity works, friends. And once you know that, there's some more good news. All the raw material is here on site. Paul mentions four raw materials in these verses that are necessary for generosity. Some of them, the first three are obvious. You, others in need, and God. But there's a fourth, the gospel. The clue is when you see this because, as in all this thanksgiving and glory is going to God, all this affection is happening because, look at verse 13, because of your submission flowing from your confession of the gospel. In other words, the gospel has got so into the Corinthians' hearts and hopefully ours that it overflows into generosity. We also see it in verse 14, because of the surpassing grace upon you. Not just a little gift in your life, but you've gotten the gospel, the good news about Jesus, salvation, recognizing you know a self-giving God who's given his life for you, and that has overflowed. The gospel has so impacted the Corinthians and hopefully so impacted us. This is the raw material we have to draw from to be generous. But it's also the raw material others need to see. Those in need, guys, actually see giving as normal. One-time gifts. Often, People see it as, well, that person kind of likes me. I have a relationship with them. That's why they gave to me. Or 
people who are the recipient of gifts think, well, that's kind of his cause, right? He gives to you know, at-risk kids, or they give to single moms in need, or to hospice, or to someone wants to give generously to young and struggling marriages by opening their home. There are different ways you can give. That's kind of their thing. It's different than generosity. See, when they start to see it's not just me or us, I am not the primary reason for generosity any longer. They start to ask why. In other words, they see a life that's dedicated not towards, towards be generous towards one person, but generosity that's spreading from their lives. That's when they start to ask why. That's what we see actually at the end of verse 13, right? If you look there closely in verse 13, it's interesting. uh, They will glorify God because of your submission flowing from your confession of the gospel and the generosity of your contribution for them and for all others. In other words, Jerusalem's church is not only noticing the generosity for them. They're noticing the Corinthian church sharing with others that their lives have become ones of generosity. And that does something different. That causes a person to say, why are they like that? The gaze lifts from human benefactor to something bigger, a divine benefactor. When they see that there's a self-giving God that undergirds, fuels, and refills a life with generosity, it produces a sense of awe, a love, affection, thanksgiving, spurring on. When you know it's not just you as the reason someone gives, that it's something far bigger, you start to be like, huh, that's interesting. That's fascinating. When they find out there's a self-giving God behind it, and you know this, if you've ever been the recipient of one big gift, you've probably at some point thought, where did they get all that money from? You ever thought that? Like, so you get a big gift, you're like, man, where did they get that money? If you've been the recipient of a generous person, you ask the question, where did they get all that love? It's an important difference, isn't it? One gift Where do they get all that money? Generous person with a heart wide open. Where do they get all that love? And that's when you get to see the gospel. But there's one last thing. It requires dying a little death. This is the the let's be honest with ourselves moment here, guys. It requires dying a little death. Attempting to describe this act of generosity, Paul actually twice expresses awkward phrases here in this passage that people who've actually translated the Bible have a hard time rendering, have a hard time spelling out for us. You'll see it twice, first in verse 12, where Paul says, the ministry of this service, and he's trying to say, you guys giving, here's what it's going to do. But he says the ministry of this service, this literally could be probably best translated, this act of service is a sacrifice. This service sacrifice, almost with like a hyphen in the middle, the second awkward phrase is in verse 13. It's, I think, kind of poorly translated in the ESV. If you have an NIV, it would be translated like this. Because of this service by which you've proved yourselves, here's what's going to happen. Okay? That literally can be translated by this service, which is also worthy proof. So it's like worthy proof service. And Paul's trying to show something here, I think, through this awkward phrasing. He's recognizing that generosity is like a double sacrifice. So he's using sacrificial language twice in a way that's very difficult to translate for us, honestly. He's saying it's like a sacrifice-sacrifice. It's like a service combined with a sacrifice, put together with a ministry. He's recognized generosity is a greater sacrifice than rolling out of bed to get to church on time. There's something about generosity that's a little bit harder than just greeting people nearby. 
during our time of saying hello to someone. He's recognizing that there's part of you that dies with generosity. Even when part of who you are. And it doesn't compare with, I'm going to check my kids in for children's ministry so my spouse can get coffee first. There's something a little bit different about generosity and its fullness. But as we know, and here's the good news, the greater the sacrifice, the greater the resurrection from a real God who has risen from the dead. We've learned this already. And the French actually have a word for this, by the way. La petite mort, which means to die a little death. They've had a word for this for centuries. La petite mort, to die a little death. It's a phrase that gained popularity centuries ago, mostly through literature, but other ways as well. Because the French used this little word, la petite mort, to convey this idea. It's a little death that precedes life's most full and enjoyable experiences. They use it to describe that stopping of the heart. Do you ever notice that when your heart skips a beat or stops? And it usually precedes life's most full and rich experiences. For instance, when someone tells you they have a surprise for you, and they're about to unveil it, and you're like, what is it? And your heart just stops, and you have to catch your breath, and they show you. Or your first maybe kiss of the person you love, and your heart skips a beat and stops. Catch your breath. And this joy rushes through your body. Your heart stops, your breath is caught, and the feel-good hormone called oxytocin rushes into the brain. Ever experienced that? The French had a word for it. La petite mort. You die a little death to get something far greater. And you feel joy. That's what jumping into the adventure of generosity is like. There's no substitute for the heart stopping, catch your breath, dying a little death. But what follows is a full and thrilling life. It's worth it to die that little death. To give away that little part of yourself that it hurts initially. But there's no other way to experience that adventure. Over the past four years, my wife Katie has been teaching art. I get to brag on her for a minute here. She's served hundreds of kids in Cayman who, who learn a bit differently at her school while using her gift of evangelism. She loves to reach out to people who don't know Jesus. And she's done that with both teachers and students at her school. She's been able to be generous with her gifts. But being released into an environment consistently using her gifts um, and the thanksgiving and glory I'm trying to give to God as a result started somewhere else. It didn't start just with her. If you peel back a little bit, we find that all this is made possible because she got certified to teach here on island through UCCI, through a program there. But how did that happen? Because we didn't have the money to do that. We moved on island. We spent everything, pretty much, we had to come here. People gave a lot of what they had for us to come here. We didn't have that. You peel back the layer a little more. The longing I feel because of this and the tears I shed reflecting on this gift started somewhere else. It's because when we arrived on island five years ago with only my salary and that guaranteed for just three months, we're here, three months, we'll see what happens. A sunrise couple generously presented to us an option. We'll pay for your kid's tuition for a year, or we'll pay for you to get certified to teach. It's an incredibly generous offer. But that offer of generosity didn't even begin there. If you peel back a little further, it began with a prayerful discussion amongst a couple, followed by a deliberate decision to cut off something of themselves to give something of themselves, to let part of their bank account die, a little death, to serve us. I'm so grateful. 
And it's produced longing. It's produced joy. It's produced prayer for us. But even that little death didn't begin there. It began ultimately with the saving and self-giving death of Jesus Christ. That's where it started. That's the first place they went to. Think Jesus gave to us, so we want to give. And that's kind of it this morning in a nutshell, guys. I want to encourage you, respond to the gospel, the generous, self-giving gospel, by dying a little death to something valuable in your life. Die a little death to something valuable. And guess what, guys? You'll be smarter than an astrophysicist. If you die a little death in your life, take that risk. You'll be making an action, doing something that's far smarter than any astrophysicist. It's genius. God will enrich you with the gospel. He will accept your little death. He will raise it and he will breathe more life into you to do it again. And then to do it again. And then to do it again. What ingenious scientists have tried and failed for decades to do, you can begin today. God can produce through you this perpetuatingly regenerating resource that the world desperately needs, and that is grace. Let's pray. God, your word says here, the last verse, thanks be to God for this inexpressible gift. So we come to you first saying thanks be to God for this inexpressible gift. Do we mean the generosity given towards my wife and I through this certification of teaching? Or the gift given to the Gordons in Peru so they can make the known the gospel to others? Or do we mean the gift of Jesus, who was rich but for our sake became poor, that we might become rich? The answer is yes, both. We thank you for Jesus. And that because of Jesus, you've given us this resource to draw on and for others to see. The gospel, the good news. You've been so generous to us. We thank you that we can spread this through the genius of generosity. The science works. The raw materials are all here for us. Help us find a way to join in the adventure of generosity today, this week, by dying our first little death. What for some of us might be our first little death. It's hard. It's sacrificial. But what's on the other side? The adventure of, that is joy, that is full, that is generosity, is so much more valuable than dying that little death. So help us step out and die a little today. We ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen.